It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. Daniel Becerra joins us in this episode to talk about his new book, Third and Fourth Nephi, A Brief Theological Introduction. These two books of scripture are the linchpin of the Book of Mormon. They depict Christ's visit to the ancient peoples on the American continent. Daniel Becerra's brief theological introduction treats the books as guidebooks in the disciples' pursuit of Christ and Christ-likeness. Becerra asks, what do these books reveal about the nature of God, about human nature, and how the gap between the two might be bridged? Becerra is an assistant professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University and a scholar of early Christianity. You can learn more about the Brief Theological Introduction book series at our website, mi.byu.edu brief. Questions and comments about this and other episodes of the Maxwell Institute podcast can be sent to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. Today, we're briefly looking at a scripture that offers a lifetime worth of truth, 3rd and 4th Nephi. Daniel Becerra joins us today on the Maxwell Institute podcast. Daniel, welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to be here, too. I'm actually on campus today with you here at Brigham Young University, and it's nice to be doing this in person at a distance across the table here rather mm-hmm. than at a distance through Zoom. So yeah. so thanks for meeting <laughs> me here. How's your summer been? Good. Productive. Uh, I haven't had to teach this summer because I'm a new faculty member here, and they typically give us the first uh, spring and summer off. So I've been doing a lot of writing and spending time with the family and yeah, it's been good. Good. Well, by the time this comes out, you'll you'll be knee-deep in the Book of Mormon with students here at BYU, so. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start off here. You're the author of one of the brief theological introductions to the Book of Mormon. You were chosen to do 3rd and 4th Nephi. Uh, they decided to put those together because 4th Nephi is really short. What did right. you think about that? At first, I was a little... Uh, hesitant because I know Third Nephi specifically is is one of the probably most well known chapters in the Book of Mormon in addition to First Nephi. So I felt like whatever I wrote, there would be some people that might be disappointed or <laughs> some people that might want more. I was a little hesitant as well because my training is is in early Christianity, so I, I consider myself to be an aspiring as opposed to an accomplished Book of Mormon scholar. But I did my best, and it was a, a really uplifting experience and. Hopefully some of that can translate into to the lives of the readers. And I think your background pays off where you're able to bring some of your understanding of, of early Christianity and early Christian writers into dialogue with Book of Mormon authors. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start off by looking at something surprising that Mormon, the record keeper of the Book of Mormon, writes in the Book of Third Nephi. It's a statement that comes quickly. It's easy to gloss over, I think, but I think the implications could be huge here. He says, there cannot be written even a hundredth part of the things which Jesus did truly teach to the Nephites. Mm -hmm. So we're getting a condensed record here. Did that affect how you approach this? Yeah, absolutely. I think think typically we tend to look at the Book of Mormon as kind of the full picture. It's something that makes up for what the the Bible lacks, for example. We get that in in the introduction. But I think this statement suggests that 3rd and 4th Nephi, specifically the Book of Mormon generally, uh, they they gesture beyond themselves, uh, which is to say we have to approach these texts with the understanding that they never claim to be the full picture or final word uh, on Jesus Christ. Oftentimes they serve as tools whereby we can learn greater things than are contained in the text themselves. So when I approach this book... I ask the question essentially, where does this lead me? Not just what does it say, but how can I think with it in a way to reach out to Christ and to cultivate Christ-likeness? Has that changed for you over time as you've been a reader of the Book of Mormon before you became a scholar, before you were interested in doing scholarship and teaching for a living? So. Mm-hmm. Has your method of reading then changed in looking at the Book of Mormon as something that doesn't just contain everything we need to know? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think before, in my younger years, when I approached the Book of Mormon, I would do it with the intent to get some kind of feeling out of it. I read it because I wanted to feel the spirit or wanted to have strength to resist temptation or because I wanted to know a body of knowledge. Uh, You know, what does Jesus say about that? What does uh, Nephi say about this? As I've grown older, I've become more interested in what precisely it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and how I can cultivate those attributes. And the reason for this is that, and this is is all over the Book of Mormon and it's in um, other standard works and the teachings of modern day prophets and apostles as well, this idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a system of belief or a code of conduct, it's really a system of becoming. Um, It's intended to pattern our thoughts and behaviors in a way that facilitates the cultivation of Christ-likeness. So when I read the Book of Mormon, I ask the questions, what does that look like precisely? What does that look like in my emotions, in my thoughts, in my desires? And what are circumstances that are conducive to cultivating those attributes? How do I become a better person? Yes, you approach the Book of Mormon as a manual of discipleship, and manuals of discipleship I think by nature have to be incomplete in a sense because Mm -hmm. people are individual, because people have individual lives and they exist in different historical contexts Mm -hmm. and and have, you know, a lot of different backgrounds. And so if a manual of discipleship is too specific, it can't fit so many different disciples. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Your first chapter looks at Christ. Uh, At the outset, you say that the coming of Christ is the most significant event in the entire Book of Mormon, Christ actually visiting in person, the Nephites. And that had been prophesied throughout the Book of Mormon. You say that it had been heralded with signs and wonders, but you point out that the Nephites still didn't recognize it when it happened. In spite of all that, what do you make of that? Yeah, that's, I mean, when I read this, I think it's in 3 Nephi 11, 8, it says that the Nephites wist not what it meant, for they thought it was an angel that had appeared unto them. So here you have a people who have received uh, revelations and teachings for the entirety of their civilization about the coming of Christ, uh, beginning in, in 1 Nephi. And then he finally comes, and they don't recognize him. So it just raised the question in my mind, what were they expecting? Were they expecting somebody who was um, less than an angel or somebody who was more like a god? Uh, what expectations did they have? And by extension, what expectations do we have of Christ? And and how can sometimes our frustrated expectations damage our relationship with him or with uh, with one another? Yeah, so you recognize the Nephites' surprise here and, and their lack of immediate understanding as something that disciples can appreciate. That mm-hmm. discipleship, you say, kind of requires a blend of confidence, mm-hmm. but also humility. Talk about right. that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think sometimes that we have to recognize that... Uh, God requires us not just to to know Him, but sometimes to be willing to unknow Him, uh, which is to say we have to be willing to to make course corrections. We have to be willing to be humble enough to not let what we believe we know about God and Christ and and the plan of salvation to stop what we can learn about Him. And I think that's one of the lessons here. And this is something that um, is necessary because if you look at the ways in which Christ is um, described in the Book of Mormon, he is so multifaceted. He's described as a man, as a god, as a father, as a mother, um, just a lot of different uh, terms and, and metaphors used to describe him. So you have to be open. Uh, we have to be open to the idea that um, he's bigger than sometimes we assume. We have to be open to being surprised by Christ. There's a quote here that I underlined uh, mm-hmm. that says, the character of our discipleship emerges from our understanding of Christ. And mm-hmm my impulse is to then define Christ as clearly and specifically as I possibly can and mm-hmm. then and then follow and right. pattern that. And you're suggesting that all of these different metaphors and names and titles in the Book of Mormon itself suggest that we have to find a way to be both confident and sure but also flexible and open to further light and knowledge, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And open to the fact that sometimes the attributes that Christ wants us to cultivate 
by merely cultivating those attributes, we get a broader sense for what those attributes entail. So for example, the, the idea of perfection, be therefore perfect as I am and as my father am. Being able to find what perfection is isn't the same thing as uh, possessing the attribute. And one of the things I've learned is that uh, the more Christ-like I become, the more I realize how Christ-like I'm not. Hmm. I guess what I'm trying to say is we have to be open to the idea that there's always something to learn more. Um, there is a, a quote from Gregory of Nyssa, who was an early Christian theologian, um, and he wrote this about knowledge of God. He says that um, our current understanding, and this is paraphrasing, um, should not set limits to the object of our search, but should be the starting point of a search after more exalted things. So this idea that we shouldn't see our, underst- our current understanding of Christ or our current degree of spiritual maturity as the end goal. We should see it as a stepping stone to something greater, that each stair we walk up, we're able to see that there are more stairs ahead of us. Mm. It's helpful in this chapter that you point out that Jesus is referred to in 3rd and 4th Nephi by over 30 different titles. And that speaks to the kind of, that kind of flexibility and that kind of... Complexity, really, of his character. Right, Mm -hmm. that that we're supposed to continually seek after. So, Mm -hmm. what kind of images predominates? What titles for Christ do you see here in 3rd and 4th Nephi? Yeah, so one of the most prominent, not just in 3rd and 4th Nephi, but in Mormon's writings more generally, uh, is uh, the title Father. Sometimes Mormon refers to Jesus by the title Father, saying that he's the Father of heaven and earth, or the very eternal Father. Other times he uh, he compares him to the Father, saying he's like a Father, uh, or that he shares attributes with God the Father. Um, but Father is, is one of the most prominent titles in, in 3rd and 4th Nephi. And this is interesting because... I think when a lot of times when we think of Christ as a father, we tend to think about, okay, what does a perfect father look like and how is Christ like that? But the reality is not all of us, or really none of us, have perfect fathers. The the fathers we're familiar with aside from God are imperfect. So I started asking myself, like, is there something there? Can I use my, I am most familiar with imperfect fathers, and can I use that as a vehicle or as a tool for better understanding Christ? And, you know, what kind of productive, uh, what kind of spiritual fruit can that bear, as it were? What kind of spiritual fruit did it bear for you as you thought about it? So, yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I think it would be theologically problematic to say that Christ is imperfect in the same way that our earthly fathers are. But I think that our relationship with our earthly fathers can can provide tools for navigating those times in which our relationship with Christ fails to uh, live up to our expectations. And I think in, in my own life, one of the times I've felt most distant from Christ is when I've expected Him or God to, to do things that they didn't do. Um, they didn't understand. I felt the urgency of my prayers, or they didn't uh, answer them in time, or they didn't. Uh, I didn't receive a blessing that I thought was promised to me, or they didn't give me an answer to this question. I had uh, in the time that I wanted it. So let me just. Um, so this is one of the the paragraphs in the in, in the book that I like the most, and it, and it relates to this question of how can our relationships with our imperfect fathers, our earthly fathers, help us understand our relationship with our heavenly Father? And um, I think it's specifically our, our our earthly relationships are useful in the sense that they can help us uh, accept and expect our failed expectations sometimes when it comes to our relationship with Christ. And at such times, we might imagine Christ saying to us, for example, um, expect that sometimes you'll become mad or frustrated or impatient with me. Expect that sometimes you'll feel like I'm distant or too busy for you. Um, this is entirely normal. Sometimes it may seem like I don't get you or that I don't understand the urgency of your concerns and questions. Um, periodically you'll become tired of me or want nothing to do with me. You may feel like you just need a little time, a little space. This too is normal. 
Expect that sometimes you may feel embarrassed by me or afraid to acknowledge me in public. Expect not to see all the ways that I care for and sustain you, and for this to sometimes affect our relationship negatively. You may even feel like I've forsaken you. I felt this way with my father too. So this idea that even on the cross when Jesus felt forsaken by his father, there's an expectation that sometimes um, Christ isn't going to be as present in our lives as we'd like him to be. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the plan is flawed or that he is flawed or that we're flawed. Uh, sometimes it's just a, a, a reality of mortality. And I think using our, our, our relationships with our earthly fathers to understand our relationships uh, with Heavenly Father, that's kind of, that can help us get there in, in a way that's productive. It can help us uh, uh, navigate those times when we feel distant from God. And that's Christ as Father. Right. Another one that you talk about is Jesus as as a wounded God. He appears to them and he has, you know, he shows them his wounds. Yeah, so one of the interesting things about the Book of Mormon is that when it talks about resurrected beings, it talks about them as individuals who are physically perfect, which is to say they don't have any one, I think the language is one hair on the head which shall not be lost. So they're whole. Which I appreciate very yeah. much. It's a, it's a bald man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And um, it's interesting that when Christ comes as a resurrected being that he's not physically perfect. He has these wounds in his hands. And, um, you know, the question raised in my mind is like, well, why? Why did he do that? And I think part of it might be this idea that Nephite teachings about the nature of Christ up to this point had been, had, had focused on the idea that he is both God and human in some sense. And by this this being descending from the heavens, and yet he has a physical human body, he has wounds, it, it's a way for him to manifest this divine nature that he has. Another thing that it might teach the Nephites is that if you think within the historical context of when this is happening, they had just endured, uh, you know, days and nights of, of death and destruction. They themselves were probably nursing emotional and physical wounds. And then they see this God descend from heaven who has himself wounds. And maybe they saw a little bit of themselves in him. Maybe they saw a little bit, or maybe they saw that what made them human was not at odds with what could make them more godlike. And this was a way, I think, for, for Christ to relate to them, to help them to know that I am like you, and you can be like me. Yeah, this is where you tie it into earlier Book of Mormon scripture as well. Mm -hmm. I think one in Alma where it talks about the condescension of God. It talks about Jesus coming down so that his bowels could be filled with mercy. Like he had yeah. to experience weakness and mm -hmm. humanity yeah. in order to know how to succor his people. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it might have been extremely meaningful for them at this point when they had just suffered so much affliction and pain. Yes, and so for, for disciples, then it's not that they're to seek out you know, pain or, or affliction mm -hmm. and suffering, right. but that the pain and affliction and suffering that they do encounter can be turned to, uh, to something good. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's going to happen. You know, this just, that's a reality of our lives and yeah, we're going to suffer. How about Christ as, as mother? This is another image that we get here. Right. So several times in the Book of Mormon, um, Mormon or other offers refer to Christ in feminine imagery. Um, and this isn't something unique to the Book of Mormon. You see it in the, in the Bible as well. Biblical authors compare God or Christ to uh, a mother who comforts her child, to a mother bear, a mother eagle, a mother hen, a nursing mother, a woman labor, or a woman uh, looking for a lost coin. In Third Nephi, you get the image of Christ as a, as a mother hen who gathereth her chickens. And this is something we see also in the, the book of Matthew, but it's more extended in, in Third Nephi. So uh, to set the stage, there's a silence in all the land for the space of many hours. And um, Mormon tells us it came to pass that there was a voice again into the people and they heard it. And Christ says essentially a few things. He said, how often have I gathered you and nourished you? 
Um, How often would I have gathered you? How often have I gathered you? And you would not. And then he says, how often will I gather you? And as I was reading this, I imagine, I mean, just like we're sitting across a table here, like a mother sitting across the table from her son or, or her child, just kind of like banging your hands on the table saying, I've tried my best to do this. Like I've done this. I've reached out to you. And you know, you haven't you haven't tried to reach my hand. I'm doing everything I can. And then at the last um, at the last iteration of this, he says, "How often would I have gathered you, and you will not?" And then he says, "How often will I gather you?" Uh, so I see Christ to be saying, in effect, "I've done everything I could. I would do more if you let me, and I will continue to do everything I can." And in the same way that Christ, as a father, uh, is a kind of bridge to understanding, because we all have fathers or no fathers, and we can use that as kind of analogy. We have here an instance in which Christ is using the image of a mother as a kind of tool for helping us to better understand our relationship with him. And I think there's value here in the fact that men who are reading in the Book of Mormon are invited to put themselves into the position of, of women and think through metaphors. And I think women are probably more used to doing that because mm-hmm. Scripture has so many men in it. What about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I, I, I love about the feminine images of Christ in the Book of Mormon is that it really invites the disciple to see Christ in women. It invites women to see Christ in themselves. And it encourages reflection on the ways in which womanhood is akin to and anticipates godhood. Yeah, and I think that, that that's powerful for women to see that. And I think it's also powerful for men to be able to, there, there's an element of reading scripture that requires empathetic imagination. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an opportunity for everyone to, to mm-hmm. exercise that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the, so this isn't in third and fourth Nephi, but in first Nephi, you get the image of, uh, so Nephi compares, and he's quoting Isaiah, but he compares um, the Savior to a, a nursing mother. And um, there are sometimes metaphors that are inaccessible to you and I because we're men. Uh, we can we can extrapolate based on our relationship with our children or just the love that we have for other people. But I think in, in some instances, Scripture is really opening up a window to Christ's soul, to, to mothers and to women, these embodied uh, maternal experiences that we, we don't have. We don't know as men what it's like to physically ache to nourish, uh, specifically to nurse a, a child. But this is the image that's being drawn upon here. So I think it really, it opens up, there's something embodied in motherhood that gives them insight into the mind and heart of of God and Christ that males lack, I think, sometimes. Yeah, and some women as well who, who yeah, don't, exactly. you know, don't have the opportunity to do that or, or mm-hmm. you know, are incapable for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So, And at the same time, just to, to, just to go off that, uh, there are also images about the feminine uh, Christ which don't have um, embodied aspects to them. So I think, uh, I mean, just to speak to your point, uh, women who have uh, physically nursed and who haven't physically nursed children, there are there are metaphors accessible to, to all kinds of mothers in the Book of Mormon as well. That's Daniel Becerra. He's an assistant professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University and a scholar of early Christianity. He's the author of Third and Fourth Nephi, A Brief Theological Introduction from the Maxwell Institute's Brief Theological Introductions to the Book of Mormon series. Daniel, in chapter two, you move from talking about Christ to talking about humans, and you talk about what's called theological anthropology. This is a big theological term. Let's talk about what that means, theological anthropology. Right. So part of my goal in this um, volume was to kind of uh, look at traditional theological categories. Um, like So Christology is the study of the nature of Christ. Theology, with a small t, is the study of the nature of God. Ecclesiology, for example, is the study of the ecclesia or the, or the church. 
Theological anthropology is the study of human beings as they relate to God. Um, so it asks questions, you know, are humans fundamentally flawed or are they a moral clean slate, as it were? Uh, what is their destiny? How do they relate to one another? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Um, these kinds of questions. And the thing about scripture is it doesn't sit down and lay all that out yeah. as a theological treatise, right? We're treated with a series of stories and sermons mm-hmm. in the Book of Mormon. It's not systematic in laying all that out. So how do you go about looking for the theological anthropology in a scripture like that? Um, so w- this is a part where, or this is something that my training in early Christian thinking um, is something as a, of an advantage to me because you know the categories that theologians tend to think of when they talk about um, theological anthropology. So for example, a lot of times when people are talking about um, theological anthropology, they'll reference Genesis 1, 26 and 27, human beings were created in the image of likeness of God. They'll ask the question, what does that mean? Um, is that something we have at the time of creation? Is it something that we gain later on in our lives as we uh, are becoming morally formed? Um, so I just looked at uh, the way I, I have a, a small body of knowledge about the way how other theologians think about these topics, and I applied that to the Book of Mormon to see what kind of bubbles to the surface, as it were. And what does, I mean, what does the Book of Mormon say? You kind of break it out into what it says about the inner person and the mm-hmm. outer person. Let's talk about the inner person first. Yeah. So typically in the church, we tend to understand the person as a spirit in the body, which equal a soul. Um, the Book of Mormon has a much more complex understanding of the human person, uh, specifically because there are five parts of the human person. There are the heart, the mind, the soul, the spirit, and the body and flesh, which are essentially the same thing. Um, and each each part of the human person has different faculties. Um, the heart, for example, has the capacity for cognition, which is thinking, imagining, remembering. You're probably aware of statements in which... Uh, uh, which say authors say, I pondered in my heart, or mm-hmm. why do you imagine these things in your heart? In modern parlance, we don't tend to think of the heart as responsible for thinking. Right. It's more emotional. I love mm-hmm. you with all my heart means, you know, the, the heart is the center of my emotions, right? Um, the heart also is the center of emotions in the Book of Mormon. Um, so, for example, uh, my heart was filled with joy. My heart was stirred up to anger. Again, it's the locus or place of emotion. I think, by the way, just, just to interject, I think that that's a fascinating thing because since the Enlightenment, uh, we've come to separate rationality and emotion. And we yeah. think that to be rational is the opposite of being emotional. But, mm-hmm. you know, more current research, current people that, that look at what humans are and what we do are finding that that, that separation's not, not true. Yeah. There's no such thing in humans mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. reason or rationality that's separate from how we feel. Yeah. And the Book of Mormon is an ancient text that reflects something that mm-hmm. now people are coming back around to. Yeah, and it's very much a reflective of the biblical text as well and its assumptions about human personhood. But at the same time, just, in, just in, to kind of piggyback off that idea, there's, what's interesting is that the different parts of the, of the human being in the Book of Mormon, they overlap so much. So, for example, the heart and the mind, they are both responsible for cognition, emotion, and volition, volition being desire or intent uh, or sincerity. So in the same way, and I, and I, as I was thinking through this and how this is relevant, I thought about this idea of being created in the image of God and, and asked the question, how can looking inward at human nature point us upward towards God and his, and his nature? And one of the things I, I noticed was that this overlapping of responsibilities of the human person, they reflect the kind of overlapping responsibilities and nature of the Godhead. Uh, one of the things we see in the Book of Mormon is that Christ, Christ is a moving target in the sense that he's hard to pin down. Uh, he is either in somebody or overlapping with somebody or like somebody. Uh, he's 
in the Father, the Father's in him, he's one with the Father, he's also uh, one with his disciples. So you can't you can't understand Christ uh, with respect to an individual in isolation. He's always overlapping with other people. Uh, in the and same he's way. made Christ in relationship. Exactly. Like that Christhood comes in relationship <laughs> with other people. It's not right. an isolated person. All right. There is no Christ aside from Christ in relationship with other people. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's one of the things we see mirrored in our own um anthropology and our own psychology, as it were, as well. Yeah, I see myself in that same way, that I'm not who I am without all of the relationships that I've had, even from the very beginning, when I'm when I'm born as a baby. And, and with within the church, you know, we, we look at babies as being born innocent and, mm-hmm. and and reaching the age of accountability and all this thing, all these things. And the Book of Mormon talks a lot more about being fallen, I think, right. than, than we mm-hmm. tend to talk about today. Yeah. And especially uh, earlier on in the Book of Mormon, you get this idea of um, human beings are born carnal. They're they're born in a state contrary to the nature of God. Um, in other places, you get a, a little little gestures towards the idea that there's more of a moral neutrality. But the Book of Mormon's presentation of human beings is somewhat paradoxical in the sense that we are born fallen, but we also have some capacity to to be good. Like there's something there's a, there's a seed of divinity within us, whereby we can uh, become more like Christ. And I think Mormon emphasizes the idea of our fallenness because he wants to emphasize the importance of agency in becoming a better person. When Mormon refers to both God and Jesus as the father and creator of humankind, the phrases sons of God, children of God, children of your father, and children of Christ are reserved only for those who through their own faithfulness in Christ's intercession have had this status bestowed upon them, which is to say... This is different than the way we talk about it in the modern church. Uh, so, for example, in the family, uh, a proclamation to the world, it says, All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God, each a beloved spirit, son, and daughter, a heavenly parents. Um, and this is, I would argue, not always the case in the Book of Mormon. A person becomes a child of God by engaging, by participating in a covenant, which is to say kinship is not something that's inherent to our character. It's something that we have to do by becoming more like Jesus Christ. And within the church, it's interesting that both of those things can be true. I think when I approached the Book of Mormon in the past, I used to kind of see that it had all of Latter-day Saint theology kind of contained there, mm-hmm. um, at least in embryo, that it would all accord with the modern church's view on things. And what I've found is that instead we have different dispensations of information. We have the Nephites sort of have a horizon on their understanding. So we don't get, for example, the three degrees of glory. We don't get a, a heaven with, you know, with, with such diversity. We get a heaven mm-hmm. and a hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was through Joseph Smith and later revelations that we kind of get this broader understanding. So the Book of Mormon's approaching the family and, and human uh, theological anthropology from this sense of joining God's family through covenant. Mm-hmm. We still believe that, mm-hmm. but further revelation, further information has also made it clear that in, that there's also an underlying mm-hmm. kinship between all people yeah. in addition to that, that the Nephites may not have had, and, and it's possible that some of their difficulties, I think, in the divisions they had between Nephites and Lamanites and some of the racism that we see in the text might be a product of not having that additional piece of, of understanding uh, of the yeah. family of God. So the covenant stuff matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but without that extra step of of also seeing everyone as being spirit children of God, mm-hmm. man, they were missing that, and, and maybe that informs some of the problems that we see in the text. Yeah, and actually, I mean, I, I think the argument can be made that it's there, it's just not as prominent. Um, so, for example, Mormon elsewhere talks about uh, humans being created in the image of God, which is uh, an allusion to Genesis, I think. But I think it's it can be productive to think about it in different ways and to think about them as not necessarily mutually exclusive. Yeah. So, for example, if I were to contemplate the phrase... Uh, 
I am a child of God, you know, how might that affect me differently than contemplating the question, am I a child of God? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, uh, internalizing the notion that God is father to all, I think encourages us to see others as equals, as God's an embryo and as dear to deity. Um, on the other hand, internalizing the notion that God is only father to the faithful, Uh, may have different positive effects. The knowledge that kinship is bestowed and transitory, I think, creates a productive uneasiness in the soul by calling into question whether who we are currently is who we should be. So it's it's kind of an invitation to to self-evaluation, to gaze upon the gulf separating the soul's state and the soul's objective in all of its terrifying profundity. Yeah, so that's that's from the book, right? right? So, yeah. so what I take away from that is this idea that that our our kinship with God, our being children of God, is a relationship that always already exists. Mm-hmm. But to really become kin and to really become family, it requires our participation too. It requires our desire. It requires our reaching back. So God's always reaching to us, but it but we also need to reach back. It requires both sides mm-hmm. to make that relationship really mm-hmm. a family. So, so both of those things can be true, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And in the same way that you and I share the biological characteristics of, of our parents, uh, we share the spiritual potential of our of our Heavenly Father. And to become His son, as it were, or His daughter, is to is to cultivate those attributes that He has, to, to let our spiritual genes, as it were, flourish and, and, and bear fruit. And you point out how this some, sometimes is resisted today um, with, with such an emphasis in culture on personal authenticity. Mm-hmm. You talk about this in the book a little bit, and I thought thought it was interesting. How do you tie in that that view of authenticity in with this idea of discipleship as connecting ourselves to Christ and sort of being shaped by Christ? So the idea that we're to become something better can can sometimes um, be in tension with the idea that we are who we are, which is to say, um, to what degree does God want me to be myself? Um, and, does, and does he love me as myself? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And by authenticity, I'm not referring to kind of the, the, the traits of integrity or honesty or sincerity. These are all encouraged in 3 Nephi or lack of pretense. But what I refer to, what I mean by authenticity is uh, the assumption that what is natural, which is to say our inherent inclinations and desires, should be normative. Or, or, which is to say that the highest good is allegiance to my own internal feelings and impulses, independent of any external standard of conduct or, or character. And that gets tricky because really we only have our own perspective that, that's informed by you know, yeah. like revelation and, mm-hmm. and things like that, right? So mm-hmm. this, this is where I see the tension of discipleship for me is both learning how to be adapted and, and, and converted and mm-hmm. becoming, the process of becoming. But that's always experienced from my own perspective, right, so exactly. my own limited perspective. <laughs> right. And I think if we were to ask Mormon, and again, I'm putting words in his mouth, but just based on what I can distill from his writings, I, I, don't think, I don't think his writings suggest that God does not want people to be themselves. I think he would argue that being true to ourselves is a viable principle for self-governance only when we're living in Christ, uh, which is to say authenticity in this sense is relational and not individualistic. There's this image in, in 3 Nephi 18 where, where Christ says, hold your light up that it may shine into the world. So this kind of idea of, you know, let people see who you are. Mm-hmm. And then again, he says, behold, I am the light which you should hold up. Mm-hmm. This idea that we have to reflect Christ, and that's what it means to be authentic in a gospel sense. Uh, authenticity is not being who I am by default. It's being uh, the person that Christ wants me to be. It's being the person that it's him forming me 
in accordance with what is natural to me in, in the best way that he can. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that pertains to the inner person mm-hmm. when it comes to theological anthropology, but you also point out that the Book of Mormon has some things to say about the outer person as well. Perhaps in a troubling way to readers today is some of the things that it has to say about skin color, which you address yeah. in this book. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, I mean, as a person of color, this this, this um, subject is kind of uh, hits home for me. The argument can be made, I think, persuasively that such passages relating to, you know, darkness and cursedness, they don't pair well with our modern sensibilities. Um, but I think that merely ignoring them can be just as damaging as looking at nothing else but them. For example, let me just point out, like, yeah. basically, skin morality and skin color are linked there, where right. it's mm-hmm. it's supposed that Lamanites have a darker skin, and it's connected to unrighteousness or to yeah. curses. And that kind of interpretation has led to all sorts of historical uh, problems, has yeah. led to, you know, human human chattel slavery and mm-hmm. and and discrimination and all these type of things. So we can we can read the text through that lens mm-hmm. uh, to interpret skin color in that negative sense and, yeah. and you're s- sort of resisting that. Yeah, and there I mean I think there are a lot of different ways that scholars have tried to reconcile that, but I think one of the most important takeaways is that the Book of Mormon uh, or rather Mormon's discussion of skin color and Nephi's as well, they also resist reduction to mere racist ideology. Almost as soon as skin color becomes a metric of divine favor, it fails as such. So even as early as Jacob, um, he commands the Nephites to revile no more against the Lamanites because of the darkness of their skin, explaining that they are more righteous than you. So, you know, just a few chapters after skin color becomes correlated to morality, Jacob is saying, hey, this does not apply here. Um, Elsewhere, you have Nephi, for example, saying that Christ denieth none that come unto him, both black and white, bonded free, etc. And this idea that God's chosen people, this is a covenant relationship. It's not a genealogical relationship, as it were. So I think all of those together kind of undermine the idea that the Mormon or the Book of Mormon promotes a kind of racist ideology as it's um, sometimes understood in the modern age. Yes, and I've seen different members of the church read that differently. I've seen mm-hmm. some people kind of reaffirm what the text says and say, this was some literal curse that God yeah. wanted dark skin color. I've seen other people point to the possibility that the Book of Mormon itself calls out its own incompleteness. It calls out its own imperfections. And we have Book of Mormon authors saying, look, there's there are mistakes in here, okay? And, and, and when you see mistakes, just please understand they're the mistakes of, of the people who wrote the book. Yeah. Don't use that to, to judge God. In fact, give thanks to God mm-hmm. that you can see those mistakes mm-hmm. and be wiser than we were. And, yeah. and you know, so how, how do you approach it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's important that we all ask the question sometimes whether the scriptures are being prescriptive or descriptive, which is to say, are they describing what people do without making a commentary on the morality of that? Or are they prescribing what we should do, what is moral? And it might be helpful real quick just to run through these. There, there have been different ways in which scholars have understood the relationship between uh, complexion and morality in the Book of Mormon. Um, some modern interpreters have sought to distinguish between the curse and the mark uh, by arguing that the curse was in fact a separation from the Lord and his people, while the mark was darker skin. Others have suggested that skin, dark skin, is merely a metaphor uh, or that it's a remnant of 19th century racist sentiments. Uh, And according to these interpretations, darkness of skin isn't inherently bad. It's just a sign of badness in this um, particular instance. Uh, Still, other scholars have suggested that the Lamanites' dark skins refer to their clothes, like the animal hides, the animal skins. There's a Journal of Book of Mormon Studies article about that. Yeah, absolutely. And the question I always ask is, you know, assume Nephi was saying that God punishes people with dark skin. Is our theology capacious enough to allow for what I think is a a wrong assumption uh, in Scripture? 
is it okay for Nephi to have made a mistake in his estimation of what skin color means? I think it is. I think, and this is something I think we're still growing in uh, as a church, uh, the, the relationship between prophetic fallibility and inspiration, uh, the nature, the idea that no person is perfect except Christ. And, and as a result of that, as a result of our fallen human nature, all of us are going to make mistakes, even our leaders. So, I mean, we have to ask ourselves, again, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is this reflecting Nephi's um, situation or Mormon's situation? Both individuals who were in very in situations in which they were at war or had antagonistic relationships with these uh, these colored groups of individuals. So again, yeah, I don't I don't have a definitive answer, but uh, what I can say is that there's enough in the Book of Mormon to promote racist ideology, and there's enough to undermine it. Um, and we just have to ask ourselves, where is the Spirit leading us today? In a sense, the Book of Mormon poses a challenge to disciples today then, to find mm-hmm. out where they want to stand and, yeah. and what values they want to lift up in that sense. I think, I think it's not insignificant that the Book itself explicitly multiple times points out that it isn't a perfect record and invites us to engage with it in that way with charity right Mm -hmm. it says to do that to do it with charity Mm -hmm. the the authors are talking about their vulnerability you know one of them is very specific in saying he's very anxious about i'm i think i'm messing up i don't think i'm very good at this they're going to make fun they're going to people are going to mock this people are going to have a problem with this and god just says you know they need to have charity and and Mm -hmm. The way to read scripture is to engage with it where you're at. Yeah. And even, I mean, oftentimes you get um, authors saying, so for example, in the book of Alma, saying, this is my opinion. I don't know for sure. I love that. Canonized right. speculation. We <laughs> right, have exactly. straight up canonized right. speculation. Right. <laughs> and I think one of the, one of the I mean, a tip I can offer is just approach these writings with the same kind of charity and empathy that you would want somebody to approach your own writings yeah. right. and recognize that we're all products of our culture. We all have our blind spots and I, I understand that. So yeah, even as a person of color, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not particularly... Um, bothered by this because I know people are imperfect. I know God doesn't correlate uh, skin color and morality. Um, So, yeah, I think just, again, reading with compassion and empathy and recognizing that we all have our faults. We're all products of our upbringing, and that should be taken into account when we're looking at um, what kind of things should be normative, should be necessary for us to emulate. And I think it speaks to what you mentioned at the outset, which is the record doesn't contain a hundredth of the things, right. and that, that it's a manual of discipleship that's supposed to point beyond itself. It's right. supposed to point us to our own relationship with God and with each other, and it's not the definitive final word. It's an engagement. It's an invitation. It's a challenge. It has all of these it's all of these things. It's it's not just set in stone, once for all declared. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Which and doesn't it, mean it doesn't contain eternal truths. It right. means that the way that we engage with it needs to be flexible, right. so that God can teach us just as much as the Scripture does. Yeah, and I mean it just just beyond itself. And and one of the things it tells us sometimes that this is exactly what you shouldn't be doing. Um, you know, you shouldn't be looking at wealth this way. You shouldn't be treating the poor this way. Uh, and sometimes we're we're left to make those inferences by ourselves. Sometimes they're made explicit. But Scripture isn't just what we should do. It's also we have to be thoughtful about what we shouldn't uh, feel comfortable. Mm-hmm doing in the modern age. That's Daniel Becerra. He's an assistant professor of ancient scripture here at Brigham Young University and a scholar of early Christianity. And that covers chapter two about theological anthropology in terms of what the inner person is like, what the outer person is like in the Book of Mormon. Your next chapter moves on then to what we can become. So you've talked about Christ, you've talked about what the Book of Mormon says we are as humans, and then you're moving on to Christ-likeness, what the Book of Mormon is inviting us to become. So what stuck out to you about the things that 3rd and 4th Nephi have to say about spiritual development? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, One of the things is we have to keep our 
um, as disciples. And maybe this is just reading my own imperfections and, and tendencies into the text. But one of the things that really stuck out to me was this idea that we have to keep our mind on the right goal. I think a lot of times as disciples, we see the end goal as obedience, as follow the prophet. And we hear this at every conference and we teach our children it. Keep the commandments. Yeah, keep the commandments, exactly. So the end goal is, okay, I'm keeping this, I'm doing this, I'm not doing this, I'm doing good. And in the end, I'll get this as a result. Yeah, exactly. But I think the Book of Mormon invites us to see commandments not as an end in themselves, but as a means to an end, as technologies for transformation, tools for transformation. So we have to ask ourselves, and you get uh, instances of this in the New Testament as well, as in um, elsewhere in Mormon's writings, this idea that sincerity and motivations, which is to say, there are ways to be obedient that help us become better people, and there are ways to be obedient that are not recognized by God as obedience. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, how do we be obedient in a way that helps us become more like Christ? That's a big claim. Can I give, give an example <laughs> if anyone's wondering about that? I'm, I'm reminded of a passage in Isaiah where God says, hey, you're worshiping in the temple, and you're doing your sacrifices, and you're doing this and that, and guess what? I don't like any of it, yeah. because <laughs> exactly. you're not, because right. the things that those things are supposed to symbolize aren't being yeah. happening in your society. You're mm-hmm. neglecting the poor, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're casting out the foreigner and the stranger, yeah. you're doing all of these things. So guess what? All of these commandments, all these the ceremonies and all these things, uh, which are not bad in and of themselves, can be bad right. if, if they're not achieving what I want them to achieve, why, why right. I gave them to you to begin with. Yeah, they can be bad, or at the very least, they can be unfruitful, they can yeah. be, you know, pointless. And you see this also in, in I think it's in Moroni 7, where uh, you have this statement where Moroni says, and he's mirroring Pauline language, that if you pray, but without full intent of mm-hmm. heart, it counteth as, you, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter, essentially. If you give a gift, but do so grudgingly, it doesn't count. And you see the distinction between the action and the disposition of the actor, mm-hmm. and you realize that God takes both into account. Um, and obedience works, it's magic, when those two things are, are in harmony with one another, both the action and the intent and the disposition of the actor. Yeah, so we get a lot of these commandments from Christ. I don't remember how many. Did, did, mm-hmm. Am I remembering correctly that you sort of like counted all yeah. of the so I had my te- my head my reacher's assistant do it, actually. Okay. <laughs> I said, Shout out, who, right. was it? who was it? Who did it? Was, it? Uh, it was either Danny Nelson or... Um, Nelson or um, I think it was Danny, actually. So thanks, Danny. Shout out to <laughs> Danny, yes. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so I had him go through 3rd and 4th Nephi, and I said, count every commandment you see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I saw was that some are, I think it was about 150 or something like that, so it averaged out to about three per page. Mm. Um, and one of the things I saw is that some commandments are addressed to uh, specific persons, and they are not to be applied in all circumstances. So like he tells someone to go... Yeah. Something or, yeah. So know, go get your yeah. family, bring them here, yeah, right. write down the words of Samuel Lamanite. That's right. obviously not intended for us. Right. Um, but a lot of commandments you do get, um, a lot of commandments are more universal in nature. So, you know, care for the needy, fast, pray, uh, etc. With sincere intent, that's also a yeah, commandment, yeah. right? Your exactly. motive and intention. And one of the things I noticed in, in these is like uh, going back to this idea of the power of obedience is um, you have to do these kind of uh, commandments with a certain sincerity and with proper motivations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the Book of Mormon continually focuses on that. I think you'll you'll see that Christ isn't the only one who brings that up. We mm-hmm. see that from uh, Mormon and, and Moroni as well focusing on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, if you were to make a hierarchy of motivations based on um, Mormon's writings and and the Book of Mormon more broadly, uh, it would look something like this. At the bottom would be fear. Uh, You do good because you're afraid of what happens if you don't. Uh, You're afraid of going to hell. You're afraid of the Lamanites coming killing you or something like that. So, it's not framed as a bad thing in the Book of Mormon, but it's also not ideal. Above fear is a promise of reward. 
you do something because uh, you want to be blessed. You want to go to heaven. You want to prosper, uh, whatever it is. And a lot of times, even when Christ is talking to the Nephites, he frames his commandments in terms of cause and effect. If you do this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this. You know, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. A cause and effect. But a slightly, I think, um, a really telling passage in 3rd Nephi is when he asks his disciples, what do you guys want, right? So nine of them say, we want when we die to live with you in heaven. And Jesus says, okay, you know, you'll have this. And then he says, blessed are you because you've desired this thing. And then he tells the three other disciples who ask for something different, more blessed are you. And what they ask for is to remain on earth to follow God's commandments and bring souls unto Christ. And it's this idea of, what their motivations were, were love, were the desire to serve. And I think this is the ideal motivation for obedience. This is, if we if we are obedient with love and the intent to express love to God and one another, this is what makes obedience transformative. Uh, this is what it helps it, this is what helps it, uh, what, what unlocks its transformative potential. And you also say the Book of Mormon seems to be fighting against a kind of what you call moral narcissism that right. people are prone to today. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do you mean by that? Um, so I define moral narcissism as a kind of overly robust estimation of our own ability to independently affect our spiritual growth, which is to say, I can do this all by myself. Mm-hmm. I can make myself more Christ-like by myself. Or blaming ourselves, maybe the flip side of that, right, would be yeah. like, if you're failing, then just saying like, I'm a terrible person yeah, or something. absolutely. So that's one part of it. I think another do, a part of it is undue attention to our own spiritual development at the neglect of others. So it's all about me. Um, and one of the, one of the and things- And people become a tool to that too, right? Like, yeah. I do my ministering- mm-hmm. I'm so, not really that invested right. in the people I'm ministering to, but but this surely is improving my life and making me a better person. Right, exactly. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna help you move in so I can get blessings. Yeah. Like it's not about I don't love you. I just need the blessings, right? <laughs> right. And I don't think this is ideal. Yeah, it's um, better to help. Sure, right. sure. But <laughs> right. again, it's a hierarchy. Yes, right? yes. Nothing's bad, but there's better, good, better, yes. best. Yes. Um, and I mean, one of the kind of main things I've seen in, in in these chapters is that the disciples' growth and sanctity is predicated upon principles of interdependence and co-responsibility uh, and, and other-centeredness. And, and for this reason, spiritual development often occurs as a byproduct of selflessly seeking the welfare of others. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you, like, it, it's, it's crazy because God wants you to be good, obviously, so you should seek out goodness, but a lot of times transformation, moral transformation happens when you do things out of the kindness of your heart. It's a byproduct. It's not something that you seek out for its own sake, right? So there's kind of a, a, a paradox, at the very least a tension there. It's like where Christ says, lose, you know, whoever lose your, loses yeah. their life for my sake will find it in yeah. that process kind of exactly. a thing. And part of losing your life is not caring so much about yourself, not caring so much about, yeah, exactly, like you're, yeah. These are the, this is the tension of discipleship again, yeah. right? Because I'm reminded of Deidre Green talking about the the the, the danger of, of too much self-emptying and too much giving, right. where you erase yourself and you don't take care of yourself enough to love yourself, to be able to give of yourself in yeah, good exactly. ways too. So it's it's kind of a tightrope no. of discipleship here. And as a father who has a full-time job and many mothers know this as well, it's, I mean, sometimes... I feel like I have to take time away from my family to be the kind of person I need to be for them so I'm right. not all grumpy and stressed out. And I mean, that's that's a, uh, a kind of a smaller analogy, but you're exactly right. Like it takes a balance. You have to, with, with the discernment, with the spirit, with guidance from God, you have to be able to take care of yourself to the degree that you're more helpful for other people as well. And of course, no pressure, but the Book of Mormon, Jesus in the Book of Mormon, ultimate commandment here is to be perfect. Yeah. Like, no, so, pressure. no pressure. What, what right, do you make right. of that? Like, that's that's <laughs> yeah. not a small thing. And part of it is too, like, it's not just that he commands you to be perfect. It's that 
that doesn't seem to be possible in mortality. Right. Um, so he, no one is ever described as a, as perfect except God and Jesus in the Book of Mormon. Um, Sometimes uh, perfection is used to describe the degree to which one possesses a certain attribute. So perfect faith, perfect knowledge, perfect patience, whatever. Uh, but yeah, like what does it mean that God gives us a commandment that we can't attain now? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and in thinking about that, I, I reached a, a few conclusions. So one thing is uh, perhaps it's the case that our, our failed efforts to be perfect uh, make us more aware of our dependence on God and on one another. Uh, and this might, maybe one effect of this would be to motivate us to participate in healthy support systems and appropriate accountability structures and empowering covenantal relationships, and also to have empathy for others. I think the recognition that we are imperfect, if nothing else, helps us be more forgiving and patient and and, and, and welcoming of other imperfect people. And and patient with ourselves too, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, there's this term of like moral scrupulousness where people yeah. almost get OCD about having to be perfect, and, and that can be spiritually unhealthy. Right. Um, and, and even maybe even a little moral narcissism there too, where yeah. you're so much focused on whether yeah. you're good or not. Absolutely. And I think part of the, part of the, or at least one strategy for, for combating that is just recognizing uh, or rather discerning proximate ends from ultimate ends. And what I mean by that is proximate ends are those things that we can currently achieve in our fallen state. That I can achieve a certain amount of goodness now, right? And, and ultimate ends are our final goal, which is perfection, uh, which I can achieve now. Or by yourself. Yeah, exactly. And it's just resisting the tendency to believe that we're defined by our failures or that we have to be flawless to be worthy, that we can never do enough or that our efforts are futile. Um, if failing to be perfect is the norm, then one of the disciples' most useful skills is the ability to learn from failure. Hmm. You also point out that Christ-likeness in the Book of Mormon is not a state of like permanent happiness either. And, and I think sometimes I've expected that. Like if, if I've been experiencing depression or, or a hard time in my life, it's hard to feel like I'm living in the best way or, you know, I, don't, I guess I haven't felt very Christ-like in, in my darkest moments. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the things I learned when I was trying to kind of map out what Christ-likeness looks like on a, on a psychological level, which is to say, what do Christ-like persons think? What do they feel? What do they desire? And when I was going through the emotional components of discipleship, one of the signs of spiritual maturity that frequently come up are is the um, this idea of taking so or feeling sorrow in another person's failures. So, for example, in in the beginning of the book, or rather in in Third Nephi, uh, Nephi is grieved for the hardness of the hearts and the blindness of the minds of his people. Um, when he sees the wickedness of his people, his heart was exceedingly sorrowful. sorrowful. Uh, Jesus is said to have groaned with him himself for the wickedness of Israel. Sorrow seems to be something you can't escape, at least in mortality, um, as you become spiritually, and and this is and this is as you become spiritually mature. And this is difficult because a lot of times we frame the gospel as the plan of happiness. Mm -hmm. Happiness and is the, the ultimate goal. The Book of Mormon goal. mentions that, yeah. Right, but you see in the Prologate Price and in the Book of Mormon that I don't. I'm not sure it's happiness in the way we typically understand it as euphoria and the absence of of sorrow. Um, going back to the three Nephites, uh, the disciples they said were uh, Mormon tells us they were changed that they might not taste of death and were unable and were able to avoid all pain and sorrow that mortal humans experience, quote, save it were for the sins of the world. Mm -hmm. So even in this, I don't know if it's a transfigured state or whatever, but definitely a morally elevated state, they could escape all pain and suffering except it were for the sins of the world. Yeah. So to be like Christ is to not be able to help but love other people. And if you love imperfect people, 
sorrow is going to be a byproduct of that sometimes. That's right. And that, that leads into your fourth chapter, which is about our relationships with other people. So you focused first on, on the nature of Christ. You looked at the nature of humans. You looked at the nature of discipleship, how it makes us Christ-like. And you tie it all together in chapter four, uh, just like the Book of Mormon does in fourth Nephi by looking at society. And you say that the Book of Mormon isn't ultimately a book for individual people to work out their individual righteousness. And instead, the scripture shows that that our personal righteousness really only reaches its fulfillment in community. How are you seeing that in the text? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things I did to kind of address that was I went through and asked, what are the characteristics of I? So in chapter three, I asked the question, what does discipleship look like on an individual level? And in chapter four, I asked the question, what does it look like on a communal level? Uh, Which is to say, how is it manifested in society? And I tried to identify three characteristics of ideal society. And the first one was that people had all things in common. So essentially, they were willing to relinquish their wealth um, in part or in whole to support other people. They had reached this point at which they desired and they prior they desired to help people so much, and they loved them, and they prioritized the needs of others over their own needs. And because there was a community in which everybody felt this way, it worked. Like they were able to share. People weren't uh, holding back from from others, and it didn't last that long. Uh, but when it did, it seems to be framed as the ideal society in Mormon's eyes. So yeah. So you talk about the economic conditions as kind of the first one, right? Uh, You said there were three. What's what's the next one? Yeah, so the second thing Mormon talks about is equal access to great learning. Um, So Mormon says that because uh, of the poverty of the people, some of them didn't have access to great learning. And what he seems to be referring to here is kind of a vocational training. Um, He mentions specifically uh, occupations like merchant or lawyer or officer or governor or judge. So it seems to be the case that because the poor were being disadvantaged, they also lacked opportunities to serve in a way that God would want them to serve in the community. They lacked opportunities to consecrate their gifts and talents to the betterment of a larger society. And I think there's a lesson there. Um, this idea that the purpose of knowledge is not to be hoarded, it's to be shared, to lift and empower uh, people, especially the most marginalized among us. Mm. So that's the second one. And then the mm. third, what's the third element yeah. that you're seeing? Yeah, so the third characteristic of a Christ-like society is unity. So he says, so Mormon says a few things about um, uh, unity. The first thing he, he kind of criticizes is uh, occupational specialization had led to his people becoming distinguished by ranks and divided into classes. Um, he doesn't seem to argue that there should be no hierarchies, but he does seem to suggest that uh, people should be more separated horizontally than they are vertically. People can be different, but there shouldn't be preferential treatment of some people over others, especially based on wealth and education. Um, He also uh, is critical of certain forms of tribalism. Um, You have this uh, famous phrase in 4th Nephi that at the kind of the apex of their their righteousness, um, there were no more ites, there were no more Nephites and Lamanites, but they were all children of God. So they kind of uh, divorced themselves of these um, categories and boundaries that separated them as people. And finally, he talks about unity in worship, this idea that people should be, to put it very simply, um, worshiping together at the same time in the same place. Uh, but one of the things I, I, I saw in here is that sometimes Mormon talks about um, the power of ritual being increased the more people who do it together. Mm-hmm. So, for example... It's hard right now, obviously. Yeah, which, which, which is difficult. But, like, for example, this isn't uh, so alien to us. When we want a special blessing from God, we'll fast as a ward or mm-hmm. for a missionary, we'll pray together. And and Mormon sees it suggests the same thing as well. And I don't think it's that... I don't think the lesson that Mormon wants us to, to learn is that God cares all that much about people doing the same thing at the same time. 
I think the, the lesson is that God is pleased with and honors the work accomplished in truly worshiping together in the sense that, so take communal prayer, for example. It, communal prayer, praying together, it attunes our hearts, not just to God, but to one another. I have to be discerning enough and know enough about you and care enough about you to pray with sincere intent for you to be blessed. And I think that's God. That's what God wants us to accomplish. It's this unifying and melding together of individuals so that we, as human individuals, mirror the unity of God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And it seems to describe a society that, that we might call utopian. Do you, do you think that's an unfair or a foreign category to bring into this, like the idea that Fourth Nephi kind of seems to describe a utopia? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I mean, you get instances of it uh, earlier in the Book of Mormon. So, for example, King Benjamin's people, but this, the Nephites really seem to have gotten with the program here, like they lived for several centuries like this. Um, and I think, I'm, I'm not sure there's a better instance in the Book of Mormon of, of a society working in the way that God intends it to be. So this next question, I guess, is really for authors that are coming after you in the series, but I mm-hmm. wonder if you've thought about it at all, um, because 4th Nephi does not end the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. The Book of Mormon spirals again. Mm-hmm. And so it, it can seem discouraging. And I, I know Adam Miller, I'm going to ask him about this when we get to, to his mm-hmm. book, but have you thought much about that? We have this wonderful time in 4th Nephi, but it, it doesn't last. And yeah. how you how you deal with that? Yeah, and Mormon talks about, I mean, if you were to ask the question, what could have prevented this? There are a few things. Um, so Mormon mentions specifically that their children who weren't there when Christ came, it wasn't that big of a deal for them. They didn't have an experience personally, so they didn't have that kind of knowledge and experience to to rely on, to remember, as the Book of Mormon frequently says. So I guess one of the challenges is helping inculcate that kind of testimony in, in our children. Uh, another is with prosperity, or rather with morality in the Book of Mormon, comes prosperity frequently. Um, so the question arises, how do we be righteous in prosperity? Uh, Brigham Young famously said that, you know, these saints will go through persecution and, and suffering, but my worry for them is that they can't stand wealth. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, especially coming from uh, a country in which we're fairly, uh, you know, a first world country, we have to ask ourselves, you know, how can we be righteous in prosperity? It's kind of a downer, Daniel. Yeah. We're well, <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> no, just kidding. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm going to be interested to see what subsequent uh, authors in the series have to say, because like I say, I mean, the Book of Mormon doesn't really have that happy ending. And, um, you know, it's, it kind of serves as a warning, I think, to yeah. for us to, to consider. Yeah. And I end the book on a little bit more of a happy note. I mean, this this I have a quote here from Martin Luther King Jr. who who once said, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. And if we can just kind of capture this idea that discipleship is about collaboration and collectivity and other-centeredness, I think this is what is going to lead us uh, to to create a more Zion-like people. That's Daniel Becerra. He's assistant professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. He's a scholar of early Christianity, and he wrote the third and fourth Nephi volume in the Maxwell Institute's Brief Theological Introduction series. Daniel, like all the authors in the series, you aren't coming to 3rd and 4th Nephi for the first time. You bring a, a wealth of knowledge about it. You bring a background. You've read this text. It's, it's scripture that you, uh, that you view as scripture, as a message from God. But this time you're reading it with an eye toward writing about it for other people. And you've done a little bit of that because you're, you're a professor and, and so, so you, know, you, you teach. But as you're going through the book this time, was there anything that surprised you um, this time as you went through the text? I mean, one of the, I don't know if this should be surprising, but I think it's something we all need to, to remember is discipleship is not, and I've, and I've said this throughout the course of our, our conversation, is discipleship is not about us. Um, 
And I think we all are inclined to to fall into the trap of focusing too much on ourselves. I mean, you get so many metaphors and instructions that are intended to not just geared towards helping us become better individuals, but just shaping our relationships with one another. Um, and, and it really gives you a sense that heaven is not an individual matter, that heaven is, is a kinship. It's a kind of relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father and with one another. And I, I lose sight of that personally a lot because I'm, you know, a lot of times we, we fall into this trap of being so concerned with what we're doing, what we need to be doing better and goals we're making and keeping goals that we just, we, we, we fail to recognize that Christ-likeness finds its fullest uh, manifestation in our relationship with one another. So staying focused on not myself, but on, on other people is, is, is a theme I saw all throughout Third and Fourth Nephi. It's a theme I've seen throughout the Book of Mormon. Um, and it, it's not surprising in the sense that I didn't know it's there. It's surprising in the sense of how often I forget that. It's as though discipleship can't be about us unless it's about us in relation to other Absolutely. people. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to get a word, too, a little bit more before we go on your idea of theology. So this is a brief theological introduction series. How did you view that as you went into it? Different authors have different views about what constitutes theology and how to do theology. So what was your guiding principle when you thought about a brief theological introduction, other than that it had to be brief? Yeah. Uh, so, and I mentioned this earlier, one of the things I did was try to take out, uh, tradition, try to draw out traditional theological themes in the Book of Mormon. So I, I approached it in kind of a systematic approach, and I just allowed the text to kind of speak for itself. And it, as I did that, questions arised in my in my mind, and I would follow those avenues, and you know, concerns would rise, and I would I would try to you know alleviate those. So it was really kind of a personal and organic experience. But the the primary assumption I had going into this book was um, that the role of theology is not to draw a box around God; um, it's to try to search Him out, and in so doing, to clear a path towards Him. I think when we def- over-define God, we can we can limit our ability to learn more about Him because we think He can't exist outside of these boundaries. Um, so one of the things I tried to be open to was being surprised by God, being surprised by the text. Um, if I if I weren't thinking outside of the box, as it were, I probably wouldn't have uh, noticed you know God being referred to in feminine language. Uh, I probably wouldn't have noticed uh, morality being conceptualized more in terms of uh, community than in individuality. Um, so just an openness, a humility that we don't know everything, that even the things that we know that are true are also partial. I really appreciated that. In fact, one of the quotes that I double underlined and put brackets around and highlighted and, and you know put a star next to is, if there's always more to know of Christ, and I believe there is, then discipleship must at times be coupled with a suspension of certainty. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's Daniel Becerra. He's an assistant professor of ancient scripture here at Brigham Young University and a scholar of early Christianity. What are you working on now that you've finished this book and the semester's about to begin here? You working on any, any research projects? Yeah, so Book of Mormon related, I'm working on a volume with Joe Spencer, who is the um, uh, the author of First Nephi. Uh, we're writing a systematic theology of the Book of Mormon, so each chapter is dedicated to one theological category— you know, Christology, salvation, demons, angels. Ecclesiology. Ecclesiology, yeah. <laughs> and what we do is we trace out how different authors uh, talk about these traditional categories and how thought in the Book of Mormon evolves over time regarding them. And one of the things that we're seeing is that um, sometimes we have authors that have very different assumptions about the nature of God or about what angels do or about what demons do, and we hope to bring out that richness. Um, 
Another thing I'm working on is my, my dissertation, which is on um, late ancient Christian monasticism and the involvement of angels and animals and uh, in the in the process of moral formation. So that one's a little more weird. Monasticism meaning like people that live monks. in monasteries. Yeah, monks that exactly. Live separate so, from society. Yeah, and, and I love the Christian monks because they are the scientists of spiritual formation. Like they are the people who read scriptures and say, okay, how can we create a community around the idea that we should have all things in common? How can we create an, a community around the idea that, you know, we have to give all our things uh, away to the poor and that we have to pray always. What does that look like, practically speaking? So I love seeing religion lived out in the lives of these early Christian saints. Yeah, these. it's interesting to think of those monasteries as sort of laboratories yeah, exactly. uh, for spirituality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that sounds like you've got a lot of stuff going on. That's great. I look forward to seeing more work from you. I, I really enjoyed this book, Daniel. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. I've really been enjoying the reviews that have come in over the past few months. Seems like we've been getting more than ever. We got reviews from Igdub97, DP Roberts55, Hergley Burgley333, someone called Wise Man, uh, and more. I I can't read them all, do you? We don't have time for that, but I can read a few. Let's read one from Lizzie Jones. She says, I used to feel somewhat ashamed of my intellectual approach to the gospel, like somehow that meant I wasn't spiritual. But these podcasts have taught that, for me, the spirit primarily speaks through engaging my mind. The conversations on the Maxwell Institute podcast are a profound combination of mind, heart, and spirit. Thank you for enriching my life and expanding my vision. Thanks for that, Lizzie. That's exactly what we're going for here. We have another review from D.L. Carden. It says, your podcast has been such a blessing, especially during these times when I felt cut off from other sources of inspiration. I felt the same, and seeing these reviews come in has uh, lifted me as well. So thank you for that review. Got one more here from LGG Smith. It says, I listen to many podcasts, but by far my favorite one is from the Maxwell Institute. I always feel enlightened and uplifted. Having listened to all the podcasts from recent years, I'm now going back to hear ones I may have missed years ago. Well, that's a good call, LGG Smith, because if you listen to every episode that's been released so far, you get to join the Maxwell Institute Podcast Completist Club with people like Christopher Ballard, Kate Gilmore, and Mike Wilcox, new members of the club. Email me. And let me know if you're a member of the Completist Club, if you've listened to every single episode, and we'll send you something. Eventually. We really will. Uh, it's in the works now. We're figuring it out. The email address is mipodcast at byu.edu. And we'll see you next time on the Maxwell Institute Podcast.